Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Right now, we are in our Advent series, where we look at how Jesus is our hope, peace, joy, and love. Good morning and welcome. My name is Ryan, and I'm happy to say that my second most important job today is to crown the winner of our annual chicken stew competition. We're going to do that in just a minute. But first, if you're a guest with us, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, If this is your very first Sunday with us, you have the most unlucky timing ever. Just last Sunday, if you had been here for the first time, uh, we have our annual chicken stew, five different takes on a North Carolina classic. And uh, then we have a, a group of people who, who judge, and they say Christians shouldn't judge, but we do. And uh, we judge this chicken stew, and we award a winner uh, every year. And so I'm very excited to say that our winner this year, world's best chicken stew in the world that we ate last weekend, was the, te- it was not the teaching combo, the cooking combo of the Pax and the Youngs. They were the ones at the uh, fire truck. So give them a big round of applause this morning. It was uh, two families cooking together. I don't know how they're going to share the trophy, but uh, we'll see who ends up here eating out of it next year when we do this. Um, I, I, I had such a great time hanging out, talking to folks, uh, just sharing some food, sharing some fellowship. That's why we do these things, so that we can gather as God's people, as a family, and uh, hang out. That does not happen uh, just because we think up an idea or Zoe says, you know, hey, here's something that we should do. It doesn't just magically happen. It takes an incredible group of volunteers, the, uh, everybody who cooked and prepped the food, everybody who helped set up, who helped serve and make all that happen, who flipped the sanctuary, who tore down and cleaned up later. Uh, thank you uh, for me to you for helping make Calvary West a place of belonging and hope for our whole community. Appreciate you very much. Can we just thank our volunteers, Calvary West? Every week they do an incredible job. Kids, if you're in kindergarten, first or second grade, you can head on back to Kids Connect. If you're going, it's a time for uh, kindergarten, first and second graders to connect with God and each other on their level. Your kids are welcome to go. Your kids are welcome to stay with you throughout the service, of course, as well. If you're in third, fourth and fifth grade, we've got sermon note sheets every week out there at our uh, next steps area. So three tables in the lobby just on the other side of that wall. And uh, I would love, I just encourage you, uh, if you're in elementary school, middle school, high school, to be taking notes. It's a great way to remember what God is teaching you right now. And then also to be able to, to kind of call that back later. Have a conversation with your mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, about what God is teaching you, what you're learning on Sunday mornings as we study God's Word together. Uh, so go ahead and open up in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 9. We're launching into our Advent series now. And uh, we're going to start in Isaiah. The word Advent just means arrival or beginning. So arrival or beginning. So the Advent season is when we celebrate, remember uh, the first Advent arrival of Jesus into the world and uh, also the beginning of God's work through him to redeem a people back to himself, to restore people back to himself, to set everything that is broken right through Jesus. So the beginning of that work is what we're celebrating. So we're going to read from Isaiah, and then we're going to get into it just a little bit. I'm going to read a little bit of Isaiah chapter 8, the very end of Isaiah chapter 8, because Isaiah is writing to Israel with a warning and a promise. And the warning is about their faithful, faithlessness, excuse me, the promise is about God's faithfulness. And we're going to see both of those on display, end of chapter 8, 
and then into chapter 9. So chapter 8, verse 19, we're going to start there. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. So what he's saying is that there are people whose advice to you is to look somewhere other than God for the help and the hope that you need. Okay, and so Isaiah's writing to them. These people are being drawn away from God and towards other sources of wisdom, other sources of of leadership and influence. So he says, when people tell you that, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, the law and the testimony, they have no light of dawn. And they says, this is what it's going to be like if you walk away from God. Okay, if you choose to listen to those other voices, this is what it's going to be like. Verse 21, distressed and hungry. They will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's the warning. Here's the promise. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Skip down to verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Father, as we come to your word this morning, our prayer, God, is that you would accomplish something among us also. God, that you would move among us in our hearts and in our lives. God, that you would teach us who you really are, that you would teach us who we really are, who we were created to be. And that, Father, you would show us the way through Jesus from where we are to where you're calling us to be. So, Father, this morning, would you move by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit? Draw us to yourself, God. Be gracious to us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know how many of you kind of keep up with the uh, Christian liturgical calendar. Growing up Catholic, we kept up with it a lot. And uh, now living in Protestant world and being a Baptist, we don't keep up with it much, if at all, right? It's like Advent uh, is the one time of year kind of where we're on track with Christians all over the world, and then Easter, of course. But uh, if, you, if you are keeping up and you got your wreath ready, okay, Advent does not start technically until next Sunday. So don't light any candles when you get home today. You haven't missed anything. We're getting a jump start this year because this year for our Advent series, we're going to be going through all the themes of Advent. There's a, a theme each week in Advent that Christians all across the world, again, are setting their hearts and their minds on hope, peace, joy, and love. And we're starting a little bit early this year so that we can get ahead of it. 
And we can be meditating on that theme together all week until that Sunday arrives. So this week we're thinking about hope. And then as we go through all four of those themes, we're going to finish on Christmas Eve uh, by talking about that great gift of God that comes enabled by Christmas, which is the gift of faith. And so each Sunday we're going to reflect on a theme. Today we're getting started with the theme of hope. And I don't know if it's just me. Uh, sometimes I think that it might be because I, you know, during the early service I was talking and I felt like I was like maybe unnecessarily depressing some people with what I was saying. And I know like I'm a pessimistic person. I'm a cynical person. And so I can tend to see things as uh, half empty rather than half full. And that's just the way that I look at the world around me. So um, if it's just me, I apologize. But, you know, looking around, the more time that I spend consuming the news about the way that the world really is, the worse I feel about the way that the world really is. OK, and I don't know if that's you also. Um, again, it may just be me, but when I'm scrolling through Twitter and I'm just seeing it's like bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And then you think like, oh, it's so bad it can't get worse. And then, of course, it always does get worse. And it feels like sometimes that hope is giving way to hopelessness in the world around us, that there's so much bad stuff. You think about the way that the world actually is, not the way that we all wish that it was, but the way that it actually is. And then you think about the way that the Bible talks about the way the world should be. And those two things sometimes seem so incredibly far apart that it can feel a little bit hopeless to ever think that things are going to get from where they are to where they're supposed to be. Now listen, I, I'm saying this, like I wrote all of this before State even thumped Carolina last night. So I'm not even talking about that hopelessness, right? But in reflecting after the game, I thought maybe, you know, maybe the best thing we can do as loving people uh, is just to hug a Carolina fan today. You know they got to be feeling hopeless today. So listen, if you see a Carolina fan and they're looking sad, give them a, give them a little hug today. They need it. But I'm not just talking about the Carolina Blues, right, that, that they're feeling today. I'm, I'm thinking about like the big picture. And as I was reading this week from Isaiah and just thinking about the world around us, like I was just thinking, like, man, there's so much conflict right now in the world. And you got like Russia, Ukraine, and you've got Israel and Hamas, and you've got what's happening in Central Africa. Those are like the big things that catch our attention and that we see in the news. And, and those things grieve us, right? You see the, the loss of life and the animosity that people have towards each other. But I was doing some reading and there was a, it was a European think tank and they track kind of global armed conflict. And just last year alone, there were 56 different nations that were engaged in armed conflict, either between them and another nation or between like them and rebel groups within their nation or between them and like factions, gangs and drug cartels. 56 different countries across the world engaged in active armed conflict. And you think about it just here at home in the United States and like the growing tribalism and political polarization that we see. I don't know if you watch a lot of political commentary, but I was a political science major. I love politics and, and I still tune in. Like I'm not into it as much as I used to be, but I still tune in and try to keep up. I mean, nobody is discussing ideas, right? Nobody's discussing policies or like, hey, here's a way that we could serve our constituents. Like maybe a, a random voice here and there, but but you don't hear a lot of that. What you hear a lot of is name calling and yelling and assuming the worst and ascribing the worst possible motives to the other person on the other side. And you watch these political commentators get up on TV and just completely debase themselves by pitching fits. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. Like, this is like watching a child 
throw a hissy fit. And it's this person and it's that person. And of course, they're both completely convinced that they're right. And they just get on national TV and shout at each other like children. And then that happens like in real life also. You guys watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? Right? It was shut down by political protesters pitching a fit in the middle of the street. And you go like, man, that's all it is anymore. It's just angry people yelling at each other. That's what politics has become in our country. That's not the only way we see that culture has this dysfunction in our country. We've got to contend with the future of AI and machine learning. And if you're watching the news, like what happened to OpenAI over the last two weeks and the drama there, and do they have this secret project that's going to like eliminate humanity? And, you know, if that's the case, like the only thing that I ask is don't tell me about it first, right? If I'm going to be a slave of a machine one day, I don't want to know that it's coming. I just want it to be a surprise and then just get it over with, right? So like seeing it play out, like is there this like Q formula that's going to end humanity? Like I don't want to know, but it's there. It's out there. We got the confusion around human sexuality and gender and what it means to be a man or a woman created in God's image as a part of his good design. You've got the dominance, the cultural influence of social media, the way those algorithms are specifically designed to get us to respond in certain ways, both about ourselves and as we think about the world around us. You look at the economy and the news, it doesn't get any better, right? I was looking at a, a post, it was from Canada, and it was talking about the, the housing crisis in Canada and um, I know it's way far away, but they were showing like $2 million homes, like homes that had sold in the last month for $2 million. And it was like three bedroom, two, two bath ranch houses are selling for millions of dollars in Canada. It's just crazy. Like who can afford that? Who can live with, with those types of pressures? Uh, it's not just housing, it's, it's food, it's everything, right? Switch over to markers. Think about markers for physical, mental, and emotional health in the United States. And I was looking this week about pandemics, you know, and epidemics, and you've got the like sort of the medical ones, I guess, or the disease-based ones, but then there's all these other ones that are, uh, that are sort of a confluence of like medicine and culture. And it was, one of them was like the obesity epidemic. And it's, I thought that was like a pretty recent thing, but they trace that all the way back to 1976, the uptick in obesity in the United States, all the way back to 1976. You think about the homelessness epidemic. That, they trace that all the way back to the 1980s. You think about the opioid epidemic. Again, that's not a new thing. It's back all the way to the 1990s. These things that, these problems that have not been solved in our generation, right? In our lifetime, these massive problems causing massive human suffering that have not been solved. And then you've got more recently loneliness and isolation, the CDC, or sorry, the Surgeon General says is an epidemic, especially among younger and older generations, the two most disconnected generations, the young and the old. And man, the, the, it accelerated during COVID, but I don't know if you've read the book Bowling Alone. That was written back in, I think, the year 2000, tracing the decline in social engagement in American culture since the 1950s. I was thinking about that just this week, like, 21 million adults and 4 million high schoolers a year are treated for clinical depression, are, being, are under treatment for clinical depression. But if you look at the numbers for teenagers feeling persistently sad or hopeless, it's even higher. It's like 42%. 42% of high schoolers feel persistently sad or hopeless, or, or reported that during this Gallup survey over the past 30 days. That's 10.5 million high schoolers, 10 and a half million high schoolers. 
And by the way, if you're a parent or a grandparent or you work with teenagers, we send out a resource every week through Josh, our student director, um, from Axis. It's called the Culture Translator. And essentially, it, it interprets you know, uh, entertainment and gaming, uh, religion, politics, uh, in, in kind of middle school and high school age, and then interprets that to you as an adult so that you can have conversations with your kids about what's going on in their world. It's a great resource if you're not connected to that. You can sign up for it on their website, but you can also get it through Josh and his weekly email if you've got a middle schooler or a high schooler. But you think about the big picture, right? Again, I'm sorry if this is just like super down or you're in the holiday festive you know, season and it's been a little more cheery, but think about the big picture, everything going around in the world, everything going on in our own lives, the brokenness out there, the brokenness in here. And sometimes it feels... A little bit like, you know, maybe we're kind of on the deck of the Titanic and there's like there's chaos and commotion, but we're not sure how panicked we should be yet. But we've got that sense that the hope is fading and the hopelessness is growing that things will ever get better. As I've just reflected on that, like the reality is that feels new, but it's not. It feels like a new thing that things are getting worse and worse and worse, but it's actually it's actually not a new thing. There's always been this tension between hope and hopelessness. And I say always, but you can trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Before that, that wasn't the case. It was only hope. It was only good. It was only the way that things were supposed to be in Genesis 1 and 2. And then you get to Genesis 3, and what happens? People turn their backs on God. They begin to do what they think is right, rather than what God has revealed is right. And everything after that, right, is just this, this chaos. Isaiah says gloom and darkness, despair, distress, enters into the world after that. And sometimes it just feels like we're teetering on the edge, right? And with a little shove, it'd be easy to go one way or the other with our thinking. And when I say hope in, in that, I'm not talking about hope in kind of like the current modern sense. Like when we talk about hope in, in, in the culture, it's sort of a form of wishful thinking, right? I hope that such and such happens when I'm not sure, right? I hope that NC State just embarrasses, trounces, destroys. I don't know what verb you would use, Carolina. But I have no idea, right? I, I was going into the fourth quarter legitimately concerned that we were going to lose that game. And that's just what it's like being a state fan. There is always the chance that you will blow the lead. And so I was going even into the fourth quarter, like, I hope we pull it out. I mean, we're up by 30 points. How could we not? But at the same time, it's like, you've been around long enough, you know, right? So I hope that such and such a thing happens when really I have no idea and I have no ability to influence the outcome, right? I have no idea. Or we'll say like, hey, are you going to do this or that? Well, I hope we get to do this. I hope that I end up in that career. I hope I end up with that job when we're just not sure. It's wishful thinking. Let's hope for the best. Hope in those cases is a way of saying like, I want it to be true, but I have no idea. And I can't really influence the outcome either. That's not what the Bible's talking about when the Bible talks about hope. When the Bible talks about hope, there's several words in the Old Testament, several in the New Testament, but if you were to smash them all together and take one sort of unifying meaning from them, then hope in the Bible, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a confident expectation that God will keep his promises. A confident expectation that God will keep his promises. And that means that biblical hope does two things. It's got its heart set in the future. Biblical hope has its heart set in the future and its mind set in the past. Okay, biblical hope has its heart set in the future and its mind set in the past. We are looking forward to the day that has not yet come. We're looking forward to a day 
when God will keep all of his promises, when everything that he has said he will do is done at that time. And that's a day in the future, right? We are not fully and finally restored to him. We're still living between two worlds, right? Between sin and death and darkness and light and life and eternity. We're living between those two worlds right now. So it hasn't fully been realized. So we look forward, our hearts though are looking forward to that day when we live with God face to face, when we are with him and all things are set right. And when we we look ahead, because when we look at that future, we can look back at the world around us and go, it's not always going to be like this, right? That's the good news. When we look to the future, we see how things should be. We can look at the present and know it's not always going to be like this. But we have our minds set in the past. We have our minds set in the past, and that's where we're thinking about what God has already done to keep his promises, the work that he's already accomplished on our behalf. And we go, if he could do it then, then surely he could do it again. And so we have our minds set in the past on what God has already done. The Bible Project, I don't know if you guys have seen the Bible Project. We've used some of their, um, some of their stuff before. But basically, the Bible Project believes that the Bible is a unified story that's all leading up to Jesus. And so they do a lot of great explanation videos and articles about uh, each book of the Bible, big themes from the Bible. And they've got a whole a resource guide on Advent that'd be great for you to use with your family as you're doing devotions this time of year. But this is how they say it. They say biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. Biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It is a choice to wait on God to bring about a future that is just as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. And we think about Isaiah 9 specifically, we realize that God's people are no strangers to waiting. They're no strangers to waiting. Isaiah is writing at a time when sort of faithlessness rules the day. And so he is warning them, your faithlessness, you're turning away to all these other sources of leadership and inspiration and wisdom. It will have consequences. And so he's writing to warn them, but he's also giving them the promise, despite your faithfulness, God will continue to be faithful. You will suffer the consequences of your faithfulness for sure, faithlessness for sure. But you and your faithlessness will not cancel out God and His faithfulness. That's the context. So the people are faithless. God is still faithful that we read these words of hope in chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Nevertheless, no more gloom for those who are in distress. And I want you to think for just a minute, like to to just, maybe meditate's the right word, on what it would be like if you had no more gloom due to distress. No more distress, no more brokenness, right? Nothing out there in the world around you causing distress. Nothing in here in your own heart, in your own life causing distress. Nothing relationally with your family that was causing you distress. That just sounds so crazy to even like try to imagine that, but I want you just for a second to try and imagine what that would be like, how light, how freeing that would be, how steady you could feel if that were the case. No like pangs of anxiety or fear thinking this thing might happen or that thing might happen. 
right? No, no pangs of regret over what you could have done or should have done or did do wrong. None of that. No distress at all. No gloom, no darkness. A part of your life, a part of the world around us at all. It's hard to imagine, but the reality is that's what Isaiah is telling us the future has for everyone who hopes in Jesus. He's saying it feels ridiculous to even try to think about, and yet it is the future for those of us who are trusting in Jesus. And it's not because, you know, world leaders are going to get their act together, the economy is going to turn around, people are going to quit killing each other. It's not because of any of that. It's because a person is coming into the world to bring hope to a hopeless situation. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. He's not talking about the present. He's talking about the future. He's making a prophecy. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be called Mighty God. He will be called Everlasting Father. He will be called Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of his rule and of his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. This is why Isaiah is saying this. Because God had made a promise before that a ruler would come from the line of David, he would sit on David's throne, and his kingdom would last forever. And so Isaiah is saying, despite the gloom, despite the distress, despite the darkness, despite the faithlessness, God is still keeping his promise with this coming king. He will sit, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah is writing down an announcement from God through him that's meant to go to God's people and to the whole world, right? Because the whole world experiences the same darkness and distress that you and I do, right? We're not unique in that. The situations that we're in are unique to us. The circumstances are unique to us. The way that we respond in those are unique to us. But the the sense of darkness and gloom, the sense of brokenness, it's everywhere. Everyone knows. And so everyone needs this message that hope is still coming. And Isaiah means for it to go to the whole world. It's the announcement of a coming king, a coming ruler who serves his subjects rather than subjugating them. You think about how different that is than the world that we live in, right? Where the leaders, the rulers are truly there to serve, to look out for what's best for others and not to enrich themselves, not to make a name for themselves, not to become more famous or accumulate more power, but to serve. How different that would be. It's the announcement of a mighty God, one who, yes, is high and lifted up and ruling over all things, and yet condescends and comes near to his people. He doesn't wait for them to make it to him. He doesn't wait for them to to climb the mountain and reach him on their own. He comes to them. He comes low and he comes to them, the mighty God. It's the announcement of a light coming to the world that will pierce the darkness of this present age. A light that will pierce the darkness present in our hearts, freeing us, us people living in the land of the shadow of death to live in a new and a better kingdom of light and of life. In short, Isaiah is making an announcement about the good news of Jesus. It's all about the good news of Jesus. How could people living in Isaiah's dark age have hope that God would fulfill his promises to them without seeing this promise come to fulfillment? How could they have any hope in their time? Well, they look back. 
right? Even then, they were anchoring their minds in the past. And when they look back, what did they look back to? Primarily to the Exodus. You see all throughout the Old Testament, this call back to the Exodus. And they're reminding themselves, man, God's people were being faithless in Egypt and God was faithful to deliver them from the land of slavery. If he did it then, he can do it again. Well, what do we look back to as God's people today? We don't have to look all the way back to the Exodus. We don't have to look just to an event. We look back to a person. The person is Jesus. And we see God accomplishing everything necessary to save us, to bring us out of darkness, to free us from sin and death through Jesus. And it is His arrival, His advent, the beginning of His ministry that signals better days are ahead. The promise will be fulfilled. You get that sense of hope when you read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know how many of you have read Chronicles of Narnia or that book in particular, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read them, they're great. If you've got kids, they're great to read with your kids. Grandparents, you can read them with your grandkids. But I didn't read them until I was 18 years old. So I was, or, no, sorry, sorry. I didn't read them until I was like 21 years old. I was a senior in college. And so uh, I just hadn't read them. They weren't part of, you know, I didn't read a lot growing up. And so I hadn't read them. Finally got around to reading them, and man, they're, they're great. We watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the movie, on the way to get our Christmas tree with the kids yesterday. And uh, because the White Witch, who's the bad guy, makes it always winter and never Christmas, we figured this is a Christmas story, right? So we watched it with the kids on the way to get the Christmas tree yesterday. Listen, if Die Hard can be a Christmas movie, then Chronicles of Narnia can be a Christmas movie, okay? So uh, I'm sto- I'm, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But uh, it's always winter and never Christmas, So just think about like the bleakest, most dreary winter day. It's freezing cold and you've got no relief from that. And the story tells us that went on for a hundred years because of the rule of the white witch in Narnia. A hundred Christmasless winters that they suffered through. And the people in Narnia, like they have no hope that that's going to change unless something comes from the outside in and changes it. And they've had this like this prophecy that two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve will rule on the throne at, at the castle called Care Paravel, and that they will be the ones who break the witch's power and free Narnia. So there's this, there's this lingering thought in the back of the Narnian's mind, and yet for a hundred years, they've seen nothing happening. They've seen no, no movement on that. Even still in the story, even this long and bleak and hopeless extended winter, as soon as they hear that Aslan is on the move, their mood begins to change. And you catch that in the, in the book and in the movie. And that's the refrain. It's like a whisper at first, like Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. It gets louder and louder and louder as you go through the story. And the frost breaks. Like you see the impact of Aslan on the move. The frost breaks. It begins to thaw. Winter turns to spring. But things aren't fully broken, right? There's this last like battle for power in Narnia. And it's not until right, Aslan sacrifices himself on behalf of a traitor, Edmund, who betrays his brother and his sisters. It's not until Aslan sacrifices himself that the witch's power is truly broken. right? That then the siblings can ascend the throne, that Narnia can be free. It all happens because of Aslan's arrival. And in the same way, things begin to change with Jesus's arrival. His arrival into the world is this signal of hope for people living in darkness that there will be a great light. 
for people living in sin, that there will be freedom. For people bound by the chains of death, that they will be set free and experience true life. And Isaiah, even before, is holding up this ray of hope for the people. No, they didn't see Jesus, but they knew that hope was coming because Isaiah was there to tell them about it. Jesus is the one who changes everything. That's why we say that. That one encounter with Jesus can change absolutely everything. Everything about your life. Everything about your future. In the same way that Aslan's sacrifice broke the power of the white witch in Narnia, it's Jesus, His sacrificial death on our behalf that breaks the power of Satan. The power that drags us away from God. Right? And keeps us there. We all run away from God on our own, but Satan holds us there. He keeps us there. And we have no way of freeing ourselves. It's Jesus dying on our behalf that sets us free from that power and begins to to show us that there's a way out of the hopelessness. There's a way out of the gloom. There's a way away from the distress and the darkness. Better days are possible. I think then the question for us is simple, right? How do we get and stay connected? How do we get connected? How do we stay connected to the help and the hope that only Jesus can provide? How can we escape this present age of darkness and gloom? Thankfully, the answer is like the answer is just as simple as the question. If biblical hope has its heart set in the future and its mind set in the past, then that's where we need to anchor ourselves this morning. Okay, so I want you to turn with me to Revelation 21, to the very end almost of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. That's where we're just going to meditate for a few minutes this morning. Hearts in the future, minds in the past. Revelation 21, John receives this vision of the future from God, and then he writes it down for Christians throughout the ages to read. And this is what he sees. This is for everyone who's trusted Jesus to save them. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I want you to think about how different this next verse is. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, like verses 1 through 7. Adam and Eve, they choose to turn their back against God. They set their hearts on what they want rather than what God said is good. And so God has to separate them from his presence. Think about how different this is. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. What will that be like? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. No matter the present darkness, no matter the brokenness, no matter the suffering or the sin that you have endured or are enduring right now, if your trust is in Jesus, that is your hope. That one day, God will keep his promises and that you will be with him face to face, and that every single thing that was wrong will be set right. Every single thing that was broken will be mended. No more death, no more disease, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. 
It is all right in Jesus. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one wants alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.